The Ebony's and the Ivory podcast is a bi-weekly dialogue with Dr. Dejalon Jackson-Bell and Dr. Lakeitha Poole. Through the EITI podcast, we plan to promote our mission of dispelling myths, rewriting narratives, and championing women of color in higher education. All views expressed through this podcast are our own, do not represent any entity with which we are affiliated, and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. For more information or to set up a consultation, visit our website at www.ebonysintheivory.com. You are now tuned in to Ebony's in the Ivory. So we're doing something special this week. Um, we actually have five Tuesdays in a month this week, so we're bringing extra content. Um, we're bringing you another podcast, and we're really excited about this podcast um, because we have a special guest. So I'm Dr. Bell, um, and I have my lovely co-host with me, Dr. Poole. Hey, Ebony's, how are you? And I'm actually going to let Dr. Poole... Um, introduce our guest for today um, but before i hand that to her um you guys make sure that you subscribe to if you haven't already um all of our platforms um we broadcast our podcast on soundcloud and apple podcast be sure to follow and like us on instagram and facebook at ebony's in the ivory and follow us on twitter at ebbs in the ivory also be sure to check out our website at www.ebonysintheivory.com um it's, it is accessible on your phone um as well and check out the content that we have go back to when we first started check out our blog check out our podcast um and leave some comments below so like i said we're super excited um today because we have a special guest um and she's gonna share her wealth of knowledge um, with us today so i'm gonna kick it on to dr Poole. So guys, like Dr. Bell said, I'm super excited. One, because I have the dopest friends, one that I get to do this podcast with, and then another who I actually went through the doctoral journey with. Um, and so we're excited because like Dr. Bell mentioned this month, um, we have an extra Tuesday in the month and we promise you guys that we're always going to have something super cool and super special for you every Tuesday. Um, and so for episode 17, we're doing a bonus podcast episode. Um, and specifically we wanted to talk about one of the other identities that falls under Ebony's and the Ivory. So as most of you all know, who know us, um, you recognize that even though we started Ebony's and the Ivory, um, for women of color everywhere who are pursuing higher education, Dr. Bell and I both identify as Black women, as African-American women. And so it is really, really important for us to use this platform to not only support that particular population to which we belong, but to also making make sure that we are supporting women of color everywhere. And so fortunately for us, we have great friends um, who identify in a multitude of ways. And so I'm super excited to have um, my 
friends, my former classmate, because we are done done uh, with school. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and she is doing amazing things. So I want to for our topic, which is young, gifted and Latina navigating the doctoral experience introduced to you guys and welcome to the Ebony's and the Ivory podcast, Dr. Rebecca Vasquez. Hey, Ebony's. Thank y'all for having me on. I'm really excited to be a part and just love the work that y'all are doing and, and using this platform to address so many things that I wish that I had when we were going through. Um, yeah. Lakeitha. So I'm so grateful to be a part. Well, we are happy that you are here. We know that you're in a different time zone than us. So it's a little mm-hmm. late. We're trying to make sure that we respect you know, the, the good doctor's time. So, (laughs) (laughs) so we definitely are excited to have you for both your perspective, but also, you know, your warm spirit is something that I think drew us together as friends in the doctoral experience, which I'm sure we will talk about a little bit today, but just being able um, to make sure that we are highlighting specifically um, the experiences of our Latina sisters in the higher education experience and specifically the doctoral process. So we are super, super excited to have you. So before we jump in and get some um, insight and some nuggets of wisdom um, from Dr. Vasquez, I want to share, you know, we always give you guys the stats of um, whatever our topic is a little bit, just some background so that you have that. Um, so just in kind of like even perusing the, the more recent stats and there probably are even more that have come out since these, um, studies. One thing that I noticed is that you have kind of like the same group of researchers that are even looking into this topic, which is interesting because it means that there is much more work to be done. Um, I also noticed that a lot of the researchers around looking at, um, Latinas and navigating the doctoral experience are men, which I think is also very interesting. And I'm like, where are our voices in this? So um, I do think that that's important as we kind of tackle this topic today. So from um, an article from 2006 from the Journal of Hispanic Higher Education, um, numbers wise, as of March 2002, there were about 37.4 million, which is about 13% of our U.S. population of um, Latinas and Latinos in the United States. And so this makes that population, the largest minority group in the country. Um, overall, in 2000 in general, Latinos and Latinas accounted for only about 11.5% of all high school graduates, 9.5% of all college participants, and 6% of all students who obtained bachelor's degrees. And this was obviously from our 2000 census time. Um Knowing that like these numbers obviously make this particular group appear to be the least educated minority group in the U.S. when in actuality we see much more engagement from this group than actually gets reported. And so, of course, that's why more research and more highlighting of the successes of this group needs to take place. And so when we jump to thinking about um, the upper levels of education through the doctoral process, um, if we just look at the numbers, so 40,744 doctoral degrees were conferred in the year of 2001. Of those degrees, women earned 45% and racial and ethnic minorities earned about 10%. Of the doctorates that went to women, 59.1% were for, were of or for white women, um, 5.7% 
for African Americans, 3.6 for Asian Americans, 3.5 for Latinas and Latinos, and 0.5 for American, um, Native Americans. And so, of course, Again, because of this data that's sort of lacking because as not as many folks are studying um, the Latina population, it's super important for us to be able to really think about um, creating both research, but also opportunities to highlight the work that's being done um, by these women, particularly in completing the doctoral process. And so because we know on the education side that this is happening and that there's a lot of underrepresentation, we also know that once we are done with the doctoral process, um, Latinas are not only underrepresented at that level, um, but also among faculty. And so being able to make sure that we recognize that right at about 3.2%, um, this was in 2003, of faculty employed in the U.S. Um, were Latina. And so that is like ridiculous. And so being able to make sure that we are participating um, in the conversations around changing this is important. So this is, of course, what we want to be able to do today um, by being able to discuss this. And so I wanted to kind of like, I guess, guide our conversation a little bit um, to really talk about this topic, to share a quote that I found from one of the studies that I looked at. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because not only did it apply um, to Latina women, but just women in color and being able to navigate this. And so the quote says, in order to survive in the elite white university system, the collective goal of diverse students who have been admitted is to succeed with this power system, but not be broken in spirit along the way. No longer choosing assimilation as the path to success as generations before them have done, these students forge new paths by creating and employing critical, resistant, navigational strategies. When I found that quote, I was at my desk snapping That's it up. Because I recognize, you know, that we are literally, people use sort of that quote, but we are our ancestors' wildest dreams by being able to yeah. do the things that we have done and, and recognizing that we participate in a way um, that probably is different than a lot of our forefathers and mothers uh, were able to do. And so because we forged this path, we can't stop. And so that's why we have Ebony's and Ivory. That's why these conversations are important. And so I'm super excited that we have um, our guest today to get to talk about this. Dr. Bell, did you have anything before I introduce formally Dr. Vasquez? <laughs> no, I just love that. First of all, that quote is so yeah. powerful. Um, I like where it says critical, resistant, navigational strategies. Like mm -hmm. that's that's super deep to me because um, I think we do have to resist, you know, assimilation or feeling that we have to assimilate or we have to deny mm -hmm. our identity in order to be able to be successful in the ivory tower. Um, because you know of the stats that you read, and because you know we go from what was it, fifty nine percent. Of white women versus 5.7% for African Americans and 3.5%. Um, that's a huge gap. Yeah. Um, so being able to um, be true and be autonomous um, to who we are and what we identify as and still being, being able to be successful in higher ed, I think is really important. So these conversations definitely need to be had. Research definitely needs to be done. Um, and, and we need to continue to do, 
to do the work. Mm -hmm. I agree. And that's partially, you know, knowing that these experiences are very real and lived experiences of women all over the world and having this type of conversation, I think is super important. So that's why we're going to get out of y'all's way in a minute and let our guests talk about her experiences. We have some questions for her, but want her to share whatever um, she would like to. And and hopefully we will just engage in a great conversation for everybody. So let me formally introduce my friend. Um, let me use my doctor voice. Okay. So, <laughs> so um, Dr. Rebecca Vasquez is the assistant director for the Office of Violence Prevention and Victim Assist- Assistance, VPVA, um, at Rutgers University. For over a decade, Rebecca has been a passionate advocate for survivors of interpersonal violence. Her career began at Women's Space, um, the lead domestic and sexual violence agency in Mercer County, New Jersey, um, where (laughs) she served as the bilingual coordinator for most of her nine-year tenure. In that capacity, she served as court advocate, provided individual and group therapy in both English and Spanish, coordinated outreach to the Spanish-speaking immigrant community, and trained the community on numerous issues related to trauma and culture. Over the past three years, she has continued her clinical work by providing trauma-informed services to children, adolescents, and families in underserved communities in South Jersey. Rebecca earned a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Ritter University, a writer. I I don't know if I'm saying it right. Writer. Um, that's my Louisiana, uh, master of arts in counselor education from the college of New Jersey and a doctor of philosophy, PhD, in case you're wondering, um, in counselor education and supervision from Regent university. She is also a recipient of the minority fellowship program through the national board of certified counselors and her area of interest include, if you haven't guessed already from her bio, the intersection of trauma, culture, and spirituality, along with human trafficking and organizational wellness. So we can are. Say, yep, you sure can. Like, you're doing some important work. So, yes. everybody knows I'm a school counselor and I serve a um, high migrant population um, where we're dealing with, you know, sex trafficking and trauma and um, people who have recently migrated to the United States Um, and that work is so important especially with children Um, it's just so important so I just wanted to shout out to you Um, this is my first time like fully seeing your bio so like I'm just super in awe right now Um, but continue I'm sorry I teenagers, working with um, immigrant women, um, working now with college students in any capacity. It's it's all sacred. So yeah. it's you're right. It's important work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, like Dr. Bell says, we appreciate you for doing um, that work because I know that it takes 
a special um, and yes. skilled person um, to definitely do that and to have done it for as long as you have. So obviously hats off to you again and again and again. Um, so um, we can really start anywhere. It's really, yeah. you know, we want to know from your perspective about your experiences. So like I said, we have some prompts, but we can be as conversational as you want. Our listeners, I think actually is what they, that's what they enjoy probably most about the podcast. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. so share with us just in general, like, obviously we've read your bio, but like from your perspective, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your experience, um, both, you know, as a clinician, but also just in going through the doctoral process, what got you there? Any, any place you want to start? Wow. I feel like that that moment in the movie where someone spins a globe and they just like point anywhere on the map and it's like, okay, that's where we're going <laughs> to go. That's where we're going. That's how it feels right now. Um, <laughs> you know what? It was interesting. I'll, I'll start off with a word that keeps ringing in my head uh, as y'all were talking and kind of sharing those statistics and just thinking back on our own experiences, Lakeitha, and in our program and mm-hmm. the experiences of so many other the only word that keeps ringing in my head and in my heart right now is lonely. Mm. And, and I didn't consciously remember feeling that way, mm-hmm. but as I'm sitting here and reflecting, I, I feel that. And I feel that on behalf of so many other people who are in that same boat right now. Um, and, you know, to be lonely and never alone, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I had amazing support um, both through my family and um, my friends and my fellow cohort members, um, but there was something to be said about being the only mm-hmm. person um, within your ethnic racial group in any space that you were in mm-hmm. at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess I, I I know that's a bit of a somber note to start on, but that's just what was on my heart as yeah. I was listening to all those statistics. Yeah. Well, and definitely knowing that, you know, I think that was one of the things that I even as someone who doesn't necessarily belong to your specific ethnic group thought about in your experience. So I can't imagine, you know, what it felt like. And I know I had my own experience where I I was fortunate that was one other person who identified in the same way as me culturally, but we weren't the best of friends in the beginning. And so (laughs) being able to recognize yeah. that for you, you didn't even have that choice, you know, like you didn't have the option um, of having somebody else who you could, you know, more closely identify with culturally, um, just to even have a sense of, of support within your cohort. Um, so I could totally see why lonely would be the word that resonates and it's, and it's honest. So don't feel bad if you, if for, like you said, feeling like you're starting on a somber note, but that's, that's truth. And that's probably what a lot of women, um, with that same experience feel. Yeah. You know, I was thinking back, you mentioned, um, the minority fellowship through NBCC, which Mm -hmm. is an amazing program for anyone who wants to learn more about it. I'll be more than happy to share. But, um, in 2013, we were a part of the first cohort that was actually awarded the fellowship and, it was, and it is such an honor to be a part of that. And I remember, you know, anytime you get a fellowship, uh, a, a decent sized check with some zeros on it, and <laughs> you instantly become BFFs with everyone who gets that same check. And so I'm looking around the room. I'm the only Latina in, in, in that cohort as well. But the advisory council uh, was uh, ran, or 
at that time was the head of the advisory council, was and yet remains the only Latina tenure track professor in counselor education that I have ever met. Oh wow! Now, I've met I've met other um, I've met other Latina CES mm-hmm. folks, uh, you know, at conferences, and have seen now others come through different generations of the fellowship. Um, but there was there was just something. It felt like I was looking at a unicorn. Mm-hmm. It felt like there was no possible way that she could. I had never known mm-hmm. any Latina uh, within our profession. Wow! And so that was a real humbling experience for me because I didn't know that I didn't have that until I had it. Yeah. And and now <laughs> now now that I have the degree, part of what we all do in when we introduce ourselves using our degrees is to highlight the fact that people who look like us can have that degree. Mm-hmm. And so that is the only reason why I feel compelled to use the title every now and again, because I don't want anyone else to wait until they're in their actual doctoral program mm-hmm. to see someone who looks like them. Right. Wow. Yeah. That. I mean, yeah. And I remember you telling me that um, when I became a part of the fellowship as well, and you introduced me to that specific person, um, and I, I I, thought that was amazing for you, but I don't think I've ever heard the full story sort of in that way of what that probably felt like for you. And so I could imagine as other Latina women even listen to this for you, and I know you would never want to accept this, but to know that you will become that for someone else by being able to choose the profession you did, represent the way that you do, um, and to use that title um, in a way to continue to promote um, what it means to be a Latina woman um, in counselor education, um, in mental health. So... I mean, I think that's that's an it's amazing experience that you have, like you said, for for that to happen in the midst of the program, not before, and to not maybe have that beforehand, um, maybe could have even made a difference in what it it felt like for you initially. So, I totally get that. Yeah, representation matters. You yes. know that. Yeah, I know I'm preaching to the choir, <laughs> but you're right; it really, really does. So, tell us maybe a little more, like. You know, obviously we were cohort members, so some of our experiences were shared experiences, but, um, you know, there were some things that like maybe you have even felt individually either in the midst of that process or even in the application process for you of deciding, you know, where to go and um, what program or any of those things, whether they were related to culture or not, what, what are you compelled maybe to share about you know, the successes or the challenges of that experience of even getting started with the doctoral process? Well, I'll start off by saying that I swore off the doctoral program. I don't know how many times and how many different ways. (laughs) I was not trying to have it at all. And although it wasn't because I didn't think that I could, um, it was because I knew I could manage, even though I'm not like a research, like research was never my, my natural bend. Um, Mm -hmm. I've always been more relational. I've always been more, uh, more identified more as a counselor. Mm -hmm. And 
and as an educator, but not so much as a researcher. And so when uh, I started thinking about the possibility of going back on all those promises I made to myself, um, you know, I, I really integrated my faith, integrated my support system, integrated my, um, my family, of course. And as I was reflecting on my family in particular, I had this, this flashback, this memory, and you reminded me again, Lakitha, when you talked about how we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, the flashback that I had was to when I was a little girl, and I was uh, in Puerto Rico visiting my family. I was probably around eight years old, and I remember being at my grandfather's house, and my grandfather, uh, what we know is that he ran away when he was about seven years old because he was being forced to work in the sugarcane fields in Puerto Rico, and he really wanted to go to school, and he was not allowed, and so he ran away um, to another relative's house and self-taught himself mm. um, and went to the library every day and, um, you know, really just had a, a zeal for learning. And um, that was the context in which he said this from. And he, I remember being a little girl in his house many years later and he sat me down and he looked at me and he was like, you're going to be a doctor. <laughs> and as I was debating whether or not to make that decision, I could not shake that memory. And mm-hmm. I wonder how many people who are in that same boat right now, whose parents or grandparents or loved ones are, are seeing so much potential, um, but then we kind of sell ourselves short. And so I know that's not a unique experience. I know that's a really common experience, particularly within people of color and communities mm-hmm. of color. Um, but I, I can't help but think back to that mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. be grateful for that memory that helped to motivate my decision, even though I know I told you all like five million times, I did not want to, <laughs> I was not, <laughs> I really wasn't. Um, but I'm grateful. Yeah. I'm grateful that for the, for the richness in my family history that allowed for that to happen. Yeah. Well, it just makes me think about like what is inside of you, right? So this is a memory that you have of learning about this and knowing about this, you know, as a nine-year-old when your grandfather, who when he was a little boy, because of, like you said, the zeal that he had for learning um, was sort of rebellious and rambunctious um, about, you know, taking that opportunity very seriously. Um, and so for you, like you said, years later, not necessarily knowing that that would be you one day in some ways, you didn't have to run away to do it, but, <laughs> but that was right, still inside right. of you. Like that, that was a part of you. So yeah. I think that's pretty, pretty amazing and pretty telling of yeah. just who you are and who your family is and what you were almost like meant and purpose to do. So I think that's pretty, pretty cool. My question is, um, why uh, the PhD in counselor and supervision and why Regent University specifically? That's a really good question. So I only applied to one program. I only applied to Regent. Uh, I knew that at the time I wanted to teach counselors how to address trauma because that was something that I was never taught in my master's program. Um, it was, it wasn't even integrated in, in certain classes even like in, it, it just was not there um, 
And if it was, it was so superficial that it wasn't, it wasn't anything skill-based. It was, it just was so absent. And so I knew that part of the reason why I wanted to go into counselor education was to be a part of educating a new generation of counselors who were trauma-informed. And so that was really my, my driving force. Um, when I thought about and started looking into different programs, I came across Regent and I had a few friends who had gone to Regent in other disciplines and who had positive experiences. So I checked it out. And what I liked about the program was that it had a whole institute for traumatology. And so that told me a whole lot if the school was readily investing in understanding and learning about the impact of trauma. Um, I loved that it was online um, because I could still work full time and I got full time bills. So I, I could. Right. Hello. I couldn't. Um, I didn't have the luxury to work part-time and go to work full or study full-time I needed to be able to do both full-time and so the online component and the hybrid component allowed me to do that and so between the online piece the trauma piece and then also the faith piece um, that was important for me because that integration has helped to inform my work over the years even though I didn't go to any other institution that had a faith component um, it was a part of who I am and who I've developed as to be as a clinician. And so I felt like that was important to tap into and learn a little bit more about. So it kind of meant all those three things and it just kind of worked out. Love it. That's so awesome. Well, um, in thinking and you kind of touched on it a little bit, just some of the, the reasons why, you know, you chose the school you chose, you chose the program you chose, um, and even tapped into, like you said, that feeling of, of loneliness based on the makeup of our like cohort and, and sort of not having those, um, examples within counselor ed specifically, um, to sort of model after initially. Tell us about, you know, what does that look like maybe for you now that you are done and you've entered the workforce and, um, even in reading your bio, which, you know, the listeners got to hear just about your work specifically in being like a bilingual therapist to be able to help specific populations, um, within the therapeutic process. What's that been like for you just in your work life, um, as a Latina mm-hmm. in mental health and, and in trauma work? I'm chuckling because I'm having like all of these intrusive memories of all these, um, moments where as a bilingual counselor you bring a skill set to the table that is needed Mm -hmm. especially in communities that are um that have high populations of spanish-speaking folks and so um i'm having these flashes of you know supervisions where my boss is like giving me all of these cases that my counterparts don't have Mm -hmm. um the levels of advocacy the um all of the nuances that come with providing, whether it's Spanish or any other language, um, providing a service in another language. And um, I encountered burnout, I don't know how many times, yeah. uh, because it's like you, I already knew I was going to get more work, mm-hmm. but I didn't know to what extent, and I didn't know it wasn't just the clinical hour that I was working, it was all the other 
advocacy pieces and translating phone calls and writing letters and um, meeting with immigration attorneys and, um, you know, all of the other practical Maslow hierarchy needs type things that consumed. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, it's a challenge. And, and it's also one of the most rewarding experiences that I've ever had with any population that I've worked with. Um, in particular, the immigrant Latino women that I served uh, when I was at Women's Space, because the the amount of resilience and post traumatic growth that you that I had the front row seat to mm-hmm. was just amazing. So as challenging as it was, it was also extraordinarily inspirational and fulfilling. And so it's I chuckle because it's both and you yeah. know yeah. It's, it was both a, a crazy challenge and a huge blessing at the same time. Yeah. Well, and definitely like, like you said, just being in that space, knowing that like instantly your workload is doubled and the expectations around not just having to see people maybe for their 50 minute session, but also a lot of extra social support and advocacy work that you had to do well beyond um, your clinical role. Um, in part because of being able to be that extra support for that particular population, but also out of the need, because like you mentioned earlier, um, sort of seeing like a unicorn, but in some sense, you became a unicorn in that sort of setting where you were that person um, that could sort of help your clients meet probably a a larger range of their needs um, because of your skill set and because of your background. Um, which is a blessing in a sense, but also can weigh on you when it comes to your own overall, like you said, well-being and self-care and the burnout that can happen. So um, I definitely appreciate you for sharing that and being transparent about that um, as a, you know, a success in a, in, in a career like that, but also what can be challenging as well. So you want to know the funny thing? I thought that if I did my research, my dissertation research on wellness and burnout, that I would avoid burnout and practice more wellness just by doing my dissertation on it. <laughs> I think we all thought I, that. I low key and high key thought that, um, and I was I was really interested in looking at differences of of wellness and burnout between counselors of color and uh, Caucasian counselors who mm-hmm. were exposed to trauma mm-hmm. because in, in my to that point of what I shared like there's higher caseloads mm-hmm. um, there's all of these risk factors um, but there was also these protective factors and so I wanted to look at what did the data say like I know what my experience has been but I, I was curious to kind of see and understand the experiences of others and my gosh what what was amazing to me in the research was that exponentially higher levels of wellness for counselors of color as compared to their white counterparts, exponentially. Yeah. Uh, and so we are resilient people mm-hmm. and it doesn't, we don't necessarily feel it all the time. I, at least I don't, um, but our ability to, um, to navigate those spaces and to serve communities 
um, in the in the way that we do because we're a part of those communities, um, the data was super clear that yeah. yes, we did experience slightly elevated levels of burnout as compared to our white counterparts, mm-hmm. but the level of the the discrepancy between the wellness levels was really my main takeaway from the research um, because it, it wasn't subtle at all. Yeah. It was, it was a big deal. Yeah, definitely. And and like you said, oftentimes when you are in the roles that we have as clinicians, you, most people assume that we will automatically sort of also fall into a routine around our own personal wellness and boundaries and, self-care, um, when in actuality, the workload of being a clinician of color and working within your population, um, it's almost like a heavier weight, um, or load to bear because you also not only feel like you have a professional obligation, but a personal obligation. And that's a lot for one human being to try to, to navigate. So I get that. Yeah, that's why we talk about self-care so much on the podcast because um, I think we're reminding ourselves as well um, to engage, you know, in self-care. Um, like you spoke about, Dr. Poole, um, feeling obliged to, you know, do our best and work our hardest for communities um, that maybe, you know, we identify with as well um, and putting our all and all our energy into our work. Um, it's very easy to ignore or put others, other things before mm-hmm. um, our self care. So I think, like you said, it's important to, um, to that. I think your work is extremely important and your dissertation is important. I think that's what it's for at looking at the disparities and seeing, you know, um, you know the resilience from um, communities of color, even when it doesn't feel like, um, you know, we are, you know, taking care of ourselves and we are engaging in the self-care that we need to. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the other things, too, as as you think about, you know, the, the workforce part of things, you also now work in higher education and there are politics and uh-huh. messiness uh-huh. and... Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, discrimination and, you know, all these things in that layer as well. Um, you know, we ain't trying to preach a sermon, but, um, (laughs) but any specific things as you think about, even, you know, you kind of switch from like community agency work and being a Latina in that space, any differences or similarities in your experience as a Latina working in higher education? Yeah. So it's interesting because. There's so many layers to identity and, and my experience at Rutgers, um, by far over the last nine or 10 months since I've been there has been incredibly positive. Um, I have a director who, um, not only sees the value, but then backs it up with not only, um, emotional support, financial compensation, um, opportunities to collaborate. I I have great leadership uh, within my immediate department, and that makes all the difference um, when you have leadership who may not share those same identities, but um, can use their privilege to help bolster your Mm -hmm, voice. mm -hmm. Um, And so that has been a blessing. Um, And there has also been moments where 
as a Latina, um, a woman of color in leadership, um, in a trauma focused position, um, in a predominantly white institution that, yeah, it's come up (laughs) in both from both students and staff and administration Mm -hmm. where either people don't understand, uh, my credentials as a counselor educator, Mm -hmm. uh, Rutgers university as it's a very great, uh, has a very great and strong social work program. Mm -hmm. And so many of the, um, the positions at Rutgers are social work based. So they're like, counselor educator, who? Who is you? What, what are you doing here? And so I am educating mm-hmm. um, the my colleagues on, on exactly what my credential means and what my training has entailed and, and all of that. And so that's been one dynamic. But what's been more striking to me is the students uh, who have come to my office uh, and even the staff within the student affairs community that have come to my office and have, you know, whispered, so to speak, finally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. finally, someone who looks like me or someone who gets it or like, yes, <laughs> like we, you're needed here. And so when I hear that feedback, um, it just serves as a confirmation for me that, there is so much work that needs to be done um, in regards to other positions of leadership that reflect the voices in the community that it serves. And so it's been a blessing to, to be in this position. And, and of course, I'm still learning and politics and figuring out who's who. But at the same time, it's been a big blessing just to be able to connect with students, all students, not just students of color, but all students. Um, and in particular students of color to say, yeah, people who have curly hair like me, mm-hmm. a last name like me, mm-hmm. um, complexion like me, features like me, can have this degree too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then be a boss in... <laughs> <laughs> In your role, you know, I'm just saying, like, and then to do, (laughs) but to do your job with such, you know, such care, such concern, and yet still have a humbleness. And I do think that that often gets overlooked, particularly for women, more so for women of color, when we do have those credentials and we are educated and we are the person in the room that is most qualified to speak to, you know, a certain topic. And oftentimes that gets brushed under the rug. And in my experience, and actually all three of us have had experiences in higher education for sure, like working in higher ed and um, you do have those people who are like, thank God you're here finally. Right. Um, right. And then you have those other people who are just kind of like, mm, great. Here? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Like, why are you here? Exactly. Um, exactly. And that can be challenging, you know, and we've talked about that on the show before. So we won't, you know, I guess like get on our soapbox this week. Um, y'all be ready for the next time. But, you know, <laughs> we will go into that. But we've talked somewhat about our work experiences and challenging work environments and things like that. So I appreciate you again for like, you know, almost validating that experience for people. Cause I don't, I think we all know it exists because we talk about it maybe in our private conversations about our experiences among friends and stuff like that. But openly, 
we often don't get a chance to tell, you know, other women, other women of color, hey, we're super proud of you, but this is what you can expect um, potentially. And obviously the hope is that we'll get to a day where we won't have those experiences. Um, but it's, it's great that we can get to be, um, maybe on the front end that, that, that voice or that reminder that like, you know, however anyone maybe comes in and tries, um, to devalue you, to know who you are and to be able, um, to represent well without the pressure of feeling like you are the representative. Um, you know, right. those, are, those are two different things. Like you can represent without being mm-hmm. the representative. And so, um, there's that too. Yeah. That's still yeah. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you for sharing that specifically too from your experience as a, a Latina. So our last kind of question, and you can be as long or as short as you want is what advice just in general do you have for our Ebony's who are listening? Um, especially our Latina Ebony's who are listening, um, and are thinking about pursuing the doctoral degree, any words of wisdom or advice or final thoughts, um, when it comes to that process? I have so much right now floating in my head. Um, (laughs) nuggets that I've collected over the years and, um, things that I'm still learning and grappling with. Um, you know, one of the things that one of our staff, he's developing a, a workshop on identity and oppression. And he's talking about one, one of the things that he talks about just kind of resonated with me. And I think is relevant to this question. He talks about how people of color are often told that we have to work twice as hard, if not more mm-hmm. than our counterparts in order to, achieve the same level of success if that but the other side of that coin is that we don't we are taught work ethic but we are not taught rest ethic mm-hmm. and we are not taught connection ethic mm-hmm. and and that when I tell you that hit me square between the eyes because I take pride and I think a lot of us do in regards to our work ethic our ability to bring our full selves to the table and hustle. Um, And I also would love to see a generation of people who can, and particularly Latinas, um, women of color, who can have that work ethic and that rest ethic too. Yeah. Um, And I know that's lofty. I know that's big. I know that's out there, but I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm trying to navigate that within my own life. Um, but if I had to share that piece of advice, the earlier you could grapple with that, the better. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that I would share is, you know, a doc program. <laughs> I used to be intimidated um, by the thought of a doctoral program because, you know, yeah, I'm smart, but I don't know if I'm smart enough mm-hmm. or I don't know if I'm whatever enough. Um, my experience is that any doc program is not so much about intelligence. It's about, of course, you have to be, you have to be able to synthesize and analyze information, um, but you have to have the right amount of intelligence, the right amount of work ethic, as we mentioned before, mm-hmm. and just the, just the right amount of crazy. <laughs> so true. That's right. <laughs> when I tell you, it's a cocktail. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you gotta be able to have that and. And so it's not all, you know, we focus 
Brene Brown talks about the culture of scarcity. We're always focusing on what we don't have. Um, but we as people of color, we have so much. Mm-hmm. And so even if your GRE scores aren't where you want them to be, or even if, you know, there's other barriers in place um, because life happens, um, you still have a lot to bring to the table and to resist the urge to, to live in this, that place of scarcity where we always are thinking about what we don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, we have so much. You have so much to bring to the table, Ebony wherever you are listening. Uh, and so, yeah, I wish, I wish I would have had that realization. I, I feel like I had to figure that out the hard way as many of us do. Yeah, definitely. That was, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> See, this is why you get smart friends and you get great friends and you get boss friends because I mean, just listen to them. You could listen to her talk all day. Like, this is, you know, this is why she's also a therapist, you know? So, so, um, obviously we appreciate and think, and we're not done with her yet. We got like five more minutes of her time, but appreciate her for this first sort of part of the show with just sharing her nuggets of wisdom, her experiences, um, particularly in the way that we couldn't, but that we wanted to make sure that we are being supportive and, um, addressing, um, here on the show because Ebony's in the Ivory is for all women of color. And we know how important it is, um, for representation, like we talked about today, um, and how much that matters, even within, um, the marginalized groups that we represent. Um, it's, it's really just important that everybody has a voice. So we are so appreciative of Dr. Vasquez's voice, um, and presence and, um, her superstarness and my experience with her as my friend and colleague and classmate. Um, so we're just grateful for her. And so, um, as our first guest on the show, I mean, she killed it. Uh, (laughs) So, and and can I tell y'all what an honor that is, I, I know I mentioned that to y'all before the recording, but legit, it is an absolute honor to share the space as a first guest. So thank you. Uh, it really does mean the world because I know the quality of women that the two of you are. Um, Dejalana, I haven't had the opportunity to meet you in person, but I don't need to, to know the quality of <laughs> um, person that you are. And um, I really appreciate the work that both of y'all are doing in this space. And it's just a beautiful thing to connect at this particular intersection of culture and academia and um, our gender identity and faith, all these layers. It's just good. Yeah. No, we definitely appreciate you. We know, like, our listeners are going to be so appreciative of getting your perspective and hearing about your experiences. And I swear, like, your responses were like poetry. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm just grateful that, you know, we got the chance to uh, feature you and have you, um, you know, as a guest because I've been blessed, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, just, I've been blessing this time. I'm just listening like, mm, okay. Um, but we really appreciate, seriously, we appreciate um, you, you know, inspiring us and educating us as well. Yeah, definitely. So, Ebony's, we're going to take a quick break right here, and then we'll be back with our signature segment. We usually have two. Today, we only have one. Y'all already getting the bonus episode, so, you know, take this as a blessing. Um, But we'll be right back after a brief break. (laughs) 
Ebony's, we are back with the second half and last segment of the show. Um, and this is our signature segment, um, Dr. Bell's favorite one to say, Culture Corner. Uh, <laughs> um, I told her just go ahead and adopt her New Orleans accent and be lazy tongue and it'll come out just fine. But um, Culture Corner. <laughs> Um, and she would be fine, but you know, whatever. Baton Rouge folks, you can't tell them nothing. So anyways, um, our topic, which in some ways, um, very befitting that we have the guest that we have because I consider her and I know I have consulted with her before, um, around topics dealing with really all the areas probably that she's an expert in, but, um, particularly knowing that April, um, is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And so since we have Dr. RV, we're going to tap into her as an expert around this topic. But obviously, we wanted to highlight this, particularly knowing um, that as women, um, sexual assault is far too common of an experience for us. And we need to be able to make sure that we are highlighting that this is occurring and also be working to um, stop it. And so um, because this is um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month. We thought it just was a befitting topic. So I want to share a little bit of stats for people who may not be familiar around um, some of the more recent um, stats related to sexual assault here in the U.S. specifically. Um, one of the resources that I actually use pretty often um, in my clinical work when I'm working with someone um, is the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. Um, and their website's www.nsvrc.org. Um, so that's where these stats have come from, but they have tons of resources on there. They even can help someone find the clinician in their area, um, particularly if they're interested in working with that clinician around this topic. So um, if you are interested more um, and need resources, that is a, a great pl first place to go. So just to offer up a few stats around sexual assault, um, and some of these people may be familiar with, but maybe not. Um, so one in five women and one in 71 men will be raped at some point in their lives. Um, and here in the U.S., one in three women and one in six men have experienced some form of contact, sexual violence in their lifetime. Um, I think, and we're going to discuss it more, but even just knowing that one in five women versus one in 71 men, um, sort of experience that is, is, is an interesting disparity, um, around that, particularly for women. Um, 51.1% of female victims of rape, um, have reported being raped by an intimate partner and 40.8%, um, by an acquaintance. 52.4% of male victims report being raped by an acquaintance and 15.1% by a stranger. And then almost half, um, so about 49.5% of multiracial women and over 45% of um, American Indian and Alaskan Native women were subjected to some form of contact sexual violence in their lifetime. 91% of victims of rape and sexual assault are female and 9% are male. And in eight out of 10 cases of rape, the victim actually knows the perpetrator. 
Um, and 8%, which this one for me, which is kind of the last that, um, particularly with us talking about like the world of higher ed and working, um, in this field and profession that 8% of, um, rapes occur while the victim is actually at work. Um, and so just recognizing that these things, and there were plenty of more stats that I could share, but we don't have a lifetime to be able to go through some of those, but I, I thought it was important, um, as again, we are identif- we have identified this month as Sexual Assault Awareness Month and being able to figure out how to um, really be able to highlight the conversation around this, but also to really work towards um, change. And so I know for me, even like finding some of these stats and reading them, um, I was highly disturbed um, to even recognize yeah. how often, you know, this is happening to people, both male and female. Um but also, you know, specifically when it started looking at like uh, women of color um, from different yeah. groups. I mean, I don't know. It just was a lot for me, um, be- particularly maybe because that's not the specific work I do every day clinically. And so just kind of knowing that this is happening. Um, and then when you start getting into the specifics around what's happening in the workplace or that victims typically know their perpetrator, um, it just can be overwhelming. And so I know for sure as women of color, many of us have experienced um, some form maybe of unwanted sexual contact in any way, even if it was just physical touch, um, you know, or even verbal abuse, um, you know, and and, uh, sexual harassment. And so just being able to lay this topic out was important, um, particularly for our culture corner um, as we highlight this. So Dr. Bell, Dr. Vasquez, any thoughts were y'all well dr vasquez probably not as astounded by the stats because she does this work often but um any thoughts on any of that info the workplace stat threw me for a loop i'm not gonna lie um i kind of knew um about some of the other statistics Mm -hmm. but that one i was not aware um and it's very disheartening to me yeah um that you know, having a safe space at work where we spend most of our day mm-hmm. away from our families, um, you know, can be impeded upon. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely disheartening to me. Mm-hmm. I I would echo uh, that sentiment. I think there's there's the workplace and then there's a very uh, small amount of research but a growing amount of research in regards to sexual harassment and violence uh, amongst graduate students. And so working at a university now um, and particularly within student affairs, so much of the efforts to connect with uh, students are focused on undergraduate students. Mm -hmm. And so our office has has some interesting research, um, and we're, we're making more of a concerted effort to reach out to graduate students um, who comprise a huge portion of the university community um, and to provide them resources because they often, they're, not only are they experiencing uh, higher levels, higher frequency of sexual harassment and violence within their departments and within their, uh, their doctoral or, or graduate program, but they're also less likely to report. And so that's kind of the perfect storm that you don't want, whether in the workplace or in academia. And then in particular, there's very even 
less amounts of research in regards to how that impacts women of color who are navigating all these other identities that we've already kind of alluded to. And so the, the research that we do have is limited, <laughs> excuse me, but it is most definitely disturbing. Um, I'm working right now with a, a couple of doctoral students, actually, who are on my caseload, who are trying to navigate that very thing. Um, you know, how, how do you navigate your dissertation committee when the person who you made a sexual harassment allegation mm. against is on your committee? Yeah. As the sign-off on your paperwork. As wow. the sign-off on your paperwork. You know, this, wow. this, is, this is a very relevant topic within mm-hmm. higher ed, within academia, that we're not talking about that mm-hmm. much, which mm-hmm. is why it's so important. I'm so grateful that y'all decided to do this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, and like you just kind of pointed out, the fact that it is so much more common than people perceive, particularly Uh around the academic process, right, of being a grad student or um, being a faculty member, maybe even. And and, um, while our intention, of course, to bring this up isn't to be disheartening, but to make people aware and, I mean, Uh to recognize um, how prevalent this is, but also... Uh the large impact that it has on folks who are maybe wanting to be able to say something. And and like you said, the person who's been the perpetrator um, is somehow intertwined into their life around decisions that um, could change their life. And that's tough. I think already, and this is a whole nother topic of the perceived imbalance of power um, that comes with, you know, students who are, you know, could be first generational students, um, could be from communities of color who have not had anyone to um, navigate this journey before them um, and, and being faced, you know, with a situation such as sexual assault, um, you know, and feeling like, oh, I'm the first in my family, I got to get this done. I got to do this. I, gotta, I can't, you know, report or, you know, I, I have people um, looking to me or um, I have, you know, familiar obligations to uphold or um, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and, you know, professors or faculty or whomever, um, administrators in higher ed, um, you know, capitalizing on that imbalance of power yeah. um, is definitely... Um, something like you said that needs awareness needs to be brought to it i mean and that's just you know just in in, in i guess towards academics but when we think about um sexual assault that adds an entire layer mm-hmm. um to the conversation you know when i think about um i think about sexual assault and, and these topics in general on a continuum, right? So sexual assault is certainly on one end of that continuum, and we know that it happens, and we know uh, how damaging that can be in any context at any point in time. Um, the, the president of the New Jersey Coalition Against Sexual Assault, what we call NJ Casa, um, here in Jersey, um, every time she goes up to speak, she says this statement. She introduces herself and she says this. Sexual assault is the most violent crime other than murder. Mm-hmm. There is no other crime that is more violent yeah. than sexual assault. 
just to kind of give perspective mm-hmm. to what we're really talking about. So that end of the continuum, of course, is real. But then if, if we kind of look at this on a, um, if we kind of take a step back, right, we're, we, we then see um, more harassment type behaviors, but then we see more gender-based discrimination mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where it's maybe not coming off in a sexual tone, but just because of being a woman mm-hmm. in certain spaces, you know, how many times have we been mansplained to? Mm-hmm. How many times are, you know, is, is our input not sought or um, ideas are taken? And so th- this is this is a systemic issue within academia, which was not created for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're, we're talking about structures, patriarchal structures within higher, acad- higher education and academia that are not designed for women, for people of color, uh, for our LGBTQ communities. Like we are, every time we're in those spaces, we are going against the, the origins of the system. And that's what needs to happen. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's clear from our conversation, and y'all know we could talk forever. So, um, and having our wonderful guests here who does this all the time we could surely talk forever um but to recognize if nothing else you know that there is so much work to be done um and that it is important for us to use our voices to be able to speak out against sexual assault and sexual harassment and rape and violence against women in all forms um and so really making sure that as you navigate your experiences in higher education or in the graduate school process um, you know, that you use your voice to speak up and, and obviously, you know, as, um, someone who may be being victimized, that can be really, really difficult, but try to find safe places, safe people, um, to help you figure out how to navigate those experiences and be able to do right by yourself, um, in order to, you know, live your healthiest and have, um, the best life experiences, but recognizing that trauma is so real and, and those experiences are not things that we can easily overlook or, um, sort of erase from our memory when they happen, but being able to know that there are people out there to support you and to figure out, you know, if it, maybe you don't have, um, a space or a center, um, like the one that Dr. Vasquez works in at Rutgers, um, but to know that there are resources and places, um, for you to be able to do that. And, um, even if that is reaching out to us, we will help you figure out where uh-huh. where to go, where you are, um, in order to be able to be safe. So we definitely wanted to just make sure that we highlighted this topic, particularly for this month, um, but also because um, we have our beloved expert here. And I know she's like probably rolling her eyes. I'm calling her expert. But, um, uh-huh. you know, just being able to know that uh, it was just important for us to make this a topic. So I appreciate, again, her for sharing her both professional and academic experiences um, around this topic, but also for us to maybe start a conversation that we need to keep keep going. Right. Absolutely. Well, ladies, we've come to the end of our bonus episode. Any closing or final thoughts? Just want to thank you know, Dr. Vasquez again for giving us a wealth of information and um, giving us some things to ponder on and um, to be intentional about moving forward. Um, just for me in general, um, it's always good. This is like, can I get a CEU 
appreciate you so we'll stop so it won't become an ongoing battle but (laughs) no thank you no thank you no thank you um so dr bell close us out and we'll be out of y'all's way for another episode sure sure so um again this is episode 17 thank you to all our Ebony Star tribe for um, sticking with us. Um, I know, I'm not even going to say, I, th- I know that you guys enjoyed um, this episode as much as we did, um, as much as we have um, had the fun we've had with Dr. Vasquez and, and just, you know, getting the information um, and being educated on what she brings to the table. Um, continue to be on the lookout for fresh content. Um, on our EITI Tuesdays. Um, make sure that you like, follow, and subscribe to all of our social media platforms um, that I mentioned earlier in the beginning of the podcast. Um, and make sure that you submit uh, your fellow EITI accomplishments um, for our Ebony's in the spotlight. We enjoy um, putting you guys' bios up and pictures up. Um, and we want to continue to do that and just to acknowledge the work that um, you know, women of color are doing across the nation, across this world, um, as it relates to um, higher education. So please make sure that you submit. Um, don't be humble about it because um, we <laughs> want to champion you guys and um, just share with everyone the great things that y'all are doing. Um, so until next time, again, thank you, Dr. Vasquez. Thank you, Dr. Poole. Um, we will see you again. Later. Later.